Hi guys, it's Allie. Um, thanks for joining us today. Our episode is with Dr. Jennifer Hart of Wayne State University. She's a professor of history, but she also has worked to create the Digital History or the History of Communications Initiative at Wayne State, which we really talk about in this episode. Um, thank you for joining us, and we hope you enjoy the episode. Hi. Hi. How are you? Good, how are you? How <laughs> do we look at each other? <laughs> oh, I'm all right. It's been a long semester, which I'm sure you can relate to. Yeah, yeah. We already had lots of interesting approaches to doing the kind of work that academics do as far as teaching is concerned. And like, Allie didn't have a class with you, but I had a class with you and it was always felt like a really good space and like room for everyone, all different types of people to be in the classroom and, and learn and discuss in different ways. And just knowing you on also on what you do outside of the university and on social media, like your approach to academia is kind of like, maybe like a more modern approach is, and like treating people with respect and the, and the grace that they need to get through, not just a pandemic, but any life struggles that they're going through. And I think that's a newer academic approach than maybe so I would imagine that the, as far as mentioning nursing homes, there's going to be a disparity between old school academics and new ones. Yeah, yeah, I think I think that's true. And I think I think there's all you know there's also a lot of oh sorry there's also a lot of stuff going on in academia right now that's making a lot of people anxious for various reasons. And I think mm-hmm. the, the stuff about decolonization and decolonizing the academy um, so timely, right? That we did our class, but um, yeah, <laughs> you know um, I think that's making people really anxious and the DEI stuff is making a lot of white folks really anxious in the academy. And um, there's there's just a lot of like built-in terribleness that, uh, you know, that, that people are, have, are being forced to confront and um, they're, being, they're getting defensive about it because they weren't ready to confront it mm. um, or were active participants in it, um, right. intentionally or not, right? Um, and out of ignorance, out of, you know, whatever. Um, but yeah, I think all of that coupled with the pandemic and coupled with like the general crisis in higher education right now, um, and particularly in the humanities and social sciences is like a perfect storm of stress for a lot of people. And and so you get, you know, the people who weren't ready, weren't in a position to deal with any of this at all, mm. or had their kind of head buried in the sand for whatever reason. I'm in any part of it, I think. Yeah. Like, um, I think they're just really, really overwhelmed. And I mean, it's overwhelming for me too, but I I have some, like I'm I'm oriented toward addressing those things anyway. So I'm just like glad that it's it's happening. Right. Um, And heartened, but uh, yeah, no, it's it's hard for people. And yeah, in, in African studies, it's been a big conversation too. And it's, um, it's funny to me, like how hard it is for people. Like there's like the senior people in our field are, are producing things like, you know, statements or whatever, um, and trying to change, you know, the, and they're the people who hold power, right? And so they're trying to like change the way journals function and change the way our association functions and things. And um, they tie themselves up in knots a little bit, mm. trying to figure out how to do it. And then they just end up doing the wrong thing still. And uh I think it's interesting because, you know, I don't try, I don't, I mean, 
yeah, I try to do the right thing, but I'm not like a, I'm not a person who's going to go around like being activist about it all the time. I just try to do the right thing by people. And uh, it was, it was really lovely. Um, I gave a talk at Yale and a bunch of people who are friends of mine and colleagues who work in uh, Ghana and in the UK were able to come because it was virtual. And uh, one of them in the context of that, who's a graduate student, was saying that that she felt like I was an example of somebody who was white and did African studies the right way. Mm. And I was like, that means a lot. Um, but also it's just about being kind to people and opening up opportunities and acknowledging work that's being done and networking appropriately and making sure that you're like connecting with all parts of your field. Like it's, it's not hard. Um, you just have to actually care and you have to make an effort. Do you know, I think part of it though is like, is like an age thing, which sounds kind of mean, but it's also really the truth is because I think the older we get, we're all inclined to get set in our ways because like, um, I used to work at this museum in the upper peninsula and there's a position open on their advisory board. And I emailed one of the historians and I was like, I think I would be a good fit for this, but like, what do you think? And he was like, I think you would be a good fit too, because I can bring in, you know, well, I'd bring the age bracket way, way, way down. But like also because like I'm studying this right now and I can bring in new ideas and like do thought and stuff. And they and they want that because like, you know, their average visitor age is probably like 60. Mm. And like they want younger people to engage in it. I mean, and like that's kind of like I'm like moving more into like mining history. And so like I'm gonna bring that age bracket down a little bit too and stuff. And and it's just like, but every time I like go into these fields, everyone's like really grateful that I'm there because they're like, we need young people or the field's going to die. And it's like, you know, I don't study the technical aspects of it, but like the people who existed in these communities. And like, I always get such positive feedback about it. And I think that people need to be more like that, more like willing and like, you know, wanting just, just for people to be there. Otherwise it's going to be you and your eight other 80 year old colleagues in the room. And then what is your field anymore? Yeah, I, I think I think I'm I'm just always interested in I'm really interested in ideas. I'm really interested in I I like to hear about other people's work. I like to be encouraged and um, forced to think differently about things. Um, and I guess that was always the point to me of academia. Like I that's what I loved about it. And so it's always a little baffling to me when people have a hard time. Um, I, I, I kind of hope, I mean, maybe it is something that happens to all of us and then we get kind of, um, you know, encrusted in our ways, but, um, but I want to hope that I can continue to, to grow. I hope that that, that network and that like commitment to learning is something that, that continues to, to kind of push me to change. Um, I can def, I definitely am opinionated and I have, um, I have, uh, you know, clear um, commitments. I have um, kind of standards by which I choose to act and live, um, principles. Um, but I try not to be super, like, they're really general, right? It's like, yeah, listen, right? <laughs> um, they're, they're pretty, uh, they're pretty general. So, you know, I, I feel like that, that helps a lot. Like, you know, if you come into it, if you come into academia wanting to learn and wanting to constantly grow, and if it's about the exchange and the 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 intellectual exchange with all kinds of people, and you're you're open to learning from all kinds of people, um, then then I think it really helps, including your students, right? Mm. 
Yeah. And um, who aren't like, I mean, you know, elitism sometimes is one of the challenges of academia and one of the things I have a hard time with. Yeah. Uh, and, and kind of snottiness. And, and I think that's a, that's a great example of something that doesn't help either. Right. And I think that's one of the ways that people get kind of stuck in their ways. Um, and well, and growing. Allie always comes with like prepared questions, but I do have a question kind of related to that. Yeah. Um, and it's just been very recently. We, I think, do we talk to Tracy about this? We did. Um, the man who wrote the op-ed and said, Dr. Jill Biden should drop the doctor from her name. And I think in addition to like other things, you know, certain people prefer their students or people to call them by their first name. Where do you stand with that? And like any thoughts on that? And, and that in relation to like the elitism or like the fact that you've earned this prestigious title that you've definitely earned and, and should put out there. But I know lots of people have different opinions on that. Yeah, it's a good question. I've been thinking a lot about it because a lot of people are making a lot of very strong statements. And, um, and I understand the, the impetus behind that and agree with a lot of it. Um, I personally have always not wanted people to use my title. I, I don't, I tell my students to call me by my first name if they feel comfortable doing so. I'm, I understand if they don't, but, and I, I wish that, I hope that they can get to a place where they feel comfortable doing so, but, um, but yeah, I always encourage it. And especially when I'm not at work, I really prefer people not to call me by my title. So if I'm in the world, um, mm. and I, I have, you know, I'm very kind of strident about that. I really insist not being called by my title in part because I don't think it's relevant in yeah. all parts of life. And I think that sometimes, especially in the US, though in probably any country um, or culture, that, that we do often use titles to assert a kind of superiority over other people that is not always deserved um, and is sometimes maybe universalized <laughs> across other parts of social life that aren't appropriate. So, you know, I think if, we can recognize titles as things that signal expertise in a certain area, then that's great. Yeah. And you know, the moment that somebody like just that, I think Joseph Epstein is another thing. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the moment that somebody like in that situation, you know, questions somebody's expertise. Um, I think it's, you know, I would certainly also be like, hi, I, you know, I have, a PhD in this. I've worked a really long time. I am a recognized expert in this subject or in this field. Right. You know, you might not agree with me, but if you're going to argue with me um, or disagree with me, then, then we're going to do so on the basis of facts and information and evidence and make arguments. Um, and it's not going to be an ad hominem, like, you know, just because, you know, yeah. whatever, you know, whatever his problem is, I'm not entirely sure. I think there's probably many theories. <laughs> I think though, like it would be irres. I mean, I always do this, but like, there's obviously a gender component in there because, like, I don't know. I just feel like if it was, you know, Kamala Harris's husband who was doctor, and I know his first name's Doug, but I, I always forget his last name. But like, if if he was the doctor, no one would question that he should be called doctor. But like, because it's Dr. Jill Biden and like, she's the first lady, they're like, well, the first lady can't be a doctor. No. And it's like, how does this directly impact your life? Like at all? Yeah. Like, exactly. And I think that's, that's where I'm, I'm like really sympathetic to, you know, it, 
the the misogynist the misogyny in his article was really striking and um the fact that you know i i certainly know this is the case for me that that you know um that my that undergraduate students for example will default call me miss hart um and um they never do that to their male professors or very rarely do so wow um, and so i like i have a line in my syllabus that says please do not call me miss hart right um, you can call me jennifer because I am an adult and yeah. we're both adults and we can talk to each other like adults and you can recognize power relationships without calling me by a title. I think it's possible to do that. Um, but if you feel like you can't do that and you need a title, you should use my appropriate work-related title. Right. Um, and also I'm not Mrs. Hart. Yeah. Um, that's, yeah. that's not my, that's not the appropriate, uh, you know, term for me. Yeah. Um, I don't, I didn't take my husband's name. So, you know, it's, it's, it's one of those things, but, but yeah, I think um, the, you know, and I also am aware that uh, my colleagues, uh, women of color in academia also get this much more. Mm. Um, and, and so I, you know, there's a, there's a very strong tradition of using titles among African-American women, for example. Um, and I totally understand that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and support it and, and um, think, you know, it's great. And, and I, I support anybody using their title, especially in the workplace. Um, if you if you start to use it outside the workplace and, and use it as a, a way to kind of assert superiority over people, whether that be intellectual or cultural or socioeconomic or whatever else, then I, I start to have problems, but, um, and, and kind of raise questions. Uh, but, you know, in the workplace, if you want to have your students call you by doctor or professor, because, you know, you don't, you're not given authority um, or it's not assumed that you have authority in the classroom. It's assumed the opposite right? for you. I think it's totally understandable. And, um, and I think in this, you know, in this case, it was, it was really powerful to see so many academic women and men, but a lot of academic women, um, you know, speaking out and talking about how they worked to get their degrees. Right. Well, and, and then respected. working in the, humanities and stuff there was like the the so obviously the misogyny was very evident but there was this dual like tail part of the argument was like well it's an english an english degree she's a doctor a phd in english and you know i i grew up with my my dad was called dr manella and he worked in the schools and and he had people ask like why do we call him doctor and well he had a phd and he was he worked that was what his title was. And sometimes he would use it uh, when I needed some special help at school to make sure that I got it. But, um, but yeah, that's just what people called him. So, and he had a PhD. So I was like very much knew that like there are people that had doctorates that were not MDs or DOs. And like, that's like a normal title for people. And so then that, that part of it was interesting too. Like people were like, well, she has to do, you have to do so much to get that degree too. It's not like a walk in the park to just walk out with a PhD. Yeah. Yeah. She actually has, a, she has an EDD. She's a. Oh, okay. A, yeah. Uh, she teaches English though at a community college. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, yeah. Same thing. Like. Yeah. No. And, and I think, um, yeah, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of really problematic hierarchies in higher education. Um, and I think the EDD, um, the kind of negative attitudes toward the EDD is, is one of those. Um, and yeah, I mean, there's just been some not nice things um, said, 
but uh, but I think in general, like the idea that um, the humanities and social sciences, like in a moment where there's all this attack and dismissal of the humanities and social sciences, that um, this was part of that. Um, right. I think you know that gets missed in a lot of the coverage because of the misogyny thing. But there's been a couple of articles that really, and a couple of people who specifically kind of pointed that out. And I think I'm I'm really compelled by that argument. And, and that that actually should have been a lot more central. I mean, I think the misogyny thing is a big deal, but I think we have lots of conversations about misogyny and, 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 and titles in higher education um, all the time. <laughs> uh, but, which isn't to dismiss that it happened or that whatever. Um, but, you know, I think that the thing that was missing um, was, this, was this conversation about how, you know, non-STEM fields get dismissed and, and what's considered like quality. Um, you know, people questioning the the quality of her dissertation and yeah, um, well, things. I think you know that's uh, and and the kind of value of it uh, that was also really concerning. Like the idea that thinking about student success is is not a valuable um, thing to to engage in research on is is I think very concerning to me. And and again, part of that elitism. Yeah. Um, that you know, there's certain topics that just aren't worth our time. Um, and I think, I think it betrays a sort of one, one kind of category of attitudes in higher education about teaching, about students, mm. um, that does, it's not held by a lot of people, but is held by a lot of people. Um, yeah. and, uh, you know, I think, um, I do think that's changing. I think you're right that there's a, there's a kind of modern approach that people who are, who are kind of from, you know, in the last, who've gotten their PhD in maybe the last um, 10 or 15 years or so, if not more, uh, who really see teaching as central to their job, not just a thing they have to do, but mm. as absolutely central and integrated, right? So research, they are research and they are researchers and teachers, they are teacher scholars. Yeah. And, um, you know, it was, it was never, in, I would, there was never any other expectation for me, mm. um, time I was an undergrad all the way through grad school and I was very lucky in that but that's not true in every university still in every PhD program still and and it's definitely a generational shift. Mm. Do you think it also depends on like the institution that you're at because I know like I came through Northern Michigan University up in the Upper Peninsula I know the mining history makes sense now doesn't it but um and like every, like that, like the key focus there was always teaching. And like, we were well aware that like they were doing research on the side, but like, we always felt like, you know, the teaching was number one. And I felt like I learned so much coming from there. And like, you know, I don't think that I would be in the grad program without coming through there because I just feel like I was 30 steps ahead coming to Wayne and then to like get to Wayne and like, you know, to, to feel like the elitism and like the ivory towerness here it was really discouraging and to the point that I almost like dropped the history degree in the first year because I encountered a professor who will remain nameless, who just like sort of crushed me like a lot because of like all of these things that I didn't experience at Northern. And so I'm like wondering if like you think that this is like true, like that it depends on where you come out of. Um, yeah, I'm really sorry that that happened to you for starters. I, I do know what happens um, and I'm always sorry. Um, and wish that I could get those students first. But um, the, yeah, I, I do think so. Um, you know, so I went to a small liberal arts college, um, a, a selective liberal arts college, like a SLAC, right? Um, and, 
there, you know, I, I had a whole bunch of professors who were amazing researchers and amazing teachers, and they were really committed. And I think um, that made a huge difference. And then I went to a graduate program at Indiana University where um, the scholarship on teaching and learning was pretty central. Um, we, the founder of the International Society for the Scholarship on Teaching and Learning and History, which I'm now the president of at that time, uh, he, was, he was at Indiana and he taught our history pedagogy courses. Um, and uh, so we, you know, we had that and uh, we had lots of training as TAs for how to teach. Um, there was a preparing teacher faculty program that gave us opportunities to teach in, um, in kind of satellite campuses throughout the IU system. There were, um, there were a lot of things. And I think even for uh, my, my graduate school professors who didn't necessarily, um, didn't necessarily engage with SOTL, scholarship on teaching and learning in really intensive ways, they were all really committed teachers. They really liked teaching, they cared about teaching, they liked their students, they, they loved being in the classroom. And um, it was such an important part of what they did, they didn't see it as an imposition. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, research was always something that they had to do, but teaching was, was also something that, that really mattered to them. And I, I think it was, it was just so powerful. So, and then I went to Goshen College for a year and I was also surrounded by people who, I mean, they're also Mennonites and, and were lovely and kind in all sorts of ways and probably inclined to be, um, you know, lovely supportive teachers anyway. But, um, you know, they, they also were, were just very committed teachers and were doing excellent scholarship, right? And, and so, yeah, it was, it was a shock to me too, I'll say, um, and continues to be um, and, and can be really hard. And uh, it's, yeah, I, I, think it's, I think it's hard for our students. I think it's hard for some of our colleagues. Yeah. Um, it, it creates a, a hard atmosphere um, where, you know, if you're committed to students or you have a different way of conceptualizing your career. Um, and, and that's not just true um, in our department, that's true across the university. And so this is a challenge that at Wayne, um, we really have, and, it, and it's something that's been, um, it came out really clearly when we were doing gen ed reform. Mm. Uh, and, and there were people who, um, who said, well, we can't do this sort of gen ed reform because we are a research institution. And that's something that liberal arts colleges do. And we said, well, but this is something that's good for our students and right. we can't do it. We would just have to change a few things yeah. But we can do it. And they were like, no. Huh. Um, you know, there were some people who like have, they have a vision of what a research university is that is not true. Um, there's lots of research universities, including the one that I went to, that's one of the best universities in the country um, that, you know, have this commitment to teaching um, and have innovative programs for students. It, it is possible to do both. Right. But um, they, for them, they, you know, they had a particular definition of, of a research university. And, and I think, you know, so in addition to where you come from, I think the other part of it that really plays a role is why you got into it in the first place. Um, and, you know, I just know from talking to so many different people uh, at Wayne, outside of Wayne, that, um, you know, some people come to academia and, and come to being a professor because they want to do research and their research is what drives them. 
And there's other people like me who do it because we understand and appreciate the transformative power of education. We're really interested in the, in the education part of it. Um, I, I enjoy research and I do it and I do it well, but I, the reason I'm here is, is because I had a transformative experience as a student. Education transformed my life, higher education transformed my life. And I thought the most powerful possible thing I could do um, given my skills and abilities was to do that for others. Mm. So, you know, that's, that's why, you know, like I'm aware of how lucky I was to end up where I was. I wanted to ensure that other students didn't have to be lucky to get an excellent education. Um, and that didn't really matter where. Um, it's always been a little funny to me that I've ended up in a research institution and that I always, <laughs> when I get, if I get interviews and the whole time I've ever looked for jobs, I've, I've always gotten interviews at research institutions and it's always very funny to me. <laughs> um, I don't understand why, but, um, you know, yeah, I think, um, I think a place like Wayne has a lot of really interesting potential because we do have a lot of students, right, who, who want a transformative education who are who are coming and and have limited backgrounds for whatever reason whether they're from the suburbs or whether they're from the city um or whether they're from you know rural parts of michigan um you know they they also have limited backgrounds just like i did and have had limited ac access to resources and opportunities and this is we can be and should be a place where that um access is possible for them Right. We should help them connect to it. And we don't always, but, right. you know, but it is kind of how it's branded. Yeah. Um, because, you know, I live in the Detroit area. So, so you know, radio in the morning, I'll hear like a ad for Wayne or something. And, and, and my mom went to Wayne as well. And, she, you know, she was first generation college. And so that's how it was. It's branded to like, has been for generations as it's a, it's a research institution just as good as the next one, but it's in the heart of Detroit and that's more above the branding today. That's more positive than it used to be. But it's also like, we have alternatives. We have ways that you can get your degree. I think the ad I heard recently was like, whether it's your, you're going back or you're going for the first time or you're a, a mom or you, whatever, we, we have something for you. So it's really interesting that there's still this resistance when like what they're showing public is, and I do think they do do this better than other local major research universities in the state, but it's different than what they portray as far as like the, the conversations that might be happening or the roadblocks that might still exist within the institution. Yeah, yeah, I, th I think you're right. And, um, and some of it is, is, is about, you know, whose voices are the loudest in the institution. And, um, you know, that doesn't always mean that those are the people doing the work. And so, you know, um, we just recently announced a general education teaching award uh, for the first time, which is, which is about recognizing the people who really are the unsung heroes of the university. They're the people who are providing the foundational education. They're those touchstones for students that help them kind of explore and find a new path, right? And um, yeah, I'm the co-chair of the, the general education oversight committee. And in that capacity, I, that's kind of what, that's, my goal is to um, elevate the general education program and to talk about foundational education, the power of foundational education and how that is the path to transformation, right? That's the path to transformative education. That's what did it for me. That's what does it for everybody. If you use this as an opportunity to explore, you can get, you can, you can have new worlds open to you. 
um, that you didn't know existed before. You can find your passion, you can find your purpose. Um, and I think we, um, you know, probably for various reasons, um, because it has this history as a commuter campus, because, um, you know, it has this history as um, a kind of job retraining um, space for, for the last maybe 20 years or so, and because of the, the, the economy in Detroit, um, I think sometimes we, we've forgotten that um, and it's, it's gotten lost in our message. And yeah, I just, I think we can bring it back. So uh, yeah. we're like, we're trying to do this award and recognize the people who are doing all this amazing work that don't get recognized and talked about. And we're, um, we're creating a public facing website that's gonna have resources and, and stuff for students. And we're trying to talk to students a whole lot more about it and, and help train advisors to, you know, to think about it and talk about it with students and um, all sorts of other things. And we hope that this starts to change the conversation because um, we can't change everything. Uh, it's, you know, it's a process, but, but you change, if you start to change the culture um, and start to empower the people who are doing the, the hard work, right? So this is something I tell my administrative friends all the time, you know, you, you make change by um, empowering and raising highlighting the voices of the people who are doing the, the good things. Yeah. Um, and so that's, that's what we're trying to do there and in a whole bunch of other places um, so that we can, we can start slowly but surely to, <laughs> to, to make it so that Allie doesn't have those, students like Allie don't have those kinds of experiences. I mean, I guess like this is, like, is the award going to be, like, open to, like, TAs? Because, like, I, okay, cool. Because, like, that was my question. Because, like. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It's, um, so that was another really important part of it. It's, it's doing a couple of things that I think are really great. Um, and it's reflecting on all these, like, challenges in the, in the higher education right now, right? So, yeah, it's open to, um, it's open to full-time faculty, part-time faculty, staff, and TA and graduate students. So anybody who teaches in the general education program. They only have to have taught for three years, three semesters, sorry. Um, so you have to have taught a general education course for three semesters. Because um, we want kind of in, the people who are doing the investment, right? Not a one-off, but like the people right. who've really been dedicated. Um, and um, so, so we're trying to address the kind of hierarchies within the institution and the, the fact that like part-time faculty and staff um, and graduate students don't get recognized in the same way that full-time faculty are. Mm. Um, and we've changed the the things that we're looking for. Um, it's a lot less onerous. It doesn't require um, letters of recommendation, which cause all kinds of bias. Um, it doesn't allow for set scores. We don't, we don't include set scores or require them at all, um, which again has various kinds of issues connected to it. Um, there's, there's no gatekeeping in terms of, like it doesn't have to go through departments or through the college. People can self-nominate, they can nominate mm -hmm. other people there's no approval process. Um, and so with other teaching awards, there's all of these gates that you have to make it through. And so if your chair isn't a particularly supportive chair or you know, if your college is, you know, whatever, has issues uh, bureaucratically or whatever, um, then you, know, you don't have to worry about it. The kind of politics of higher education or at, of, of the university don't, won't get in your way. Right, and instead we're really evaluating you on your answers to core questions and your ability to point to artifacts, uh, pieces of evidence that, that support what, you're, what you say about yourself and your teaching. Um, and that's it. And uh, the people who do that really well will get recognized. 
and we're going to continue to do that and try to expand it more. We've had some really overwhelming and lovely support and, and comments. People are really excited about this and feeling like it's overdue and feel very seen. Right. Um, as a well, result. I was thinking the students that take those general classes don't know that they don't always know the difference between a tenured faculty, a TA, you know, a staff, you know, it's just someone who, like you said, inspired them and got them what they needed. Yeah. So that's it's like, yeah, I mean, who, whoever's doing the work, right? We wanna recognize the people who are doing the work, not the people that have a title, the people who are doing the work. Um, and yeah, I, I think it's a, it's a much different group of people than often get recognized and awarded in the university, whether that be full-time faculty members or part-time faculty members or, uh, you know, or staff or, or graduate students. But I, I do think that it's, um, It'll be interest. It's it's been interesting already to to hear people's like really positive responses to it, and and I think it will be interesting to see what we get in terms of nominations. I wonder if like um, are you going to like try to like make sure like students know that this is a thing so that they can nominate the people? Because I imagine that nothing says that you're doing a great job teaching as a bunch of student nominations for a, for a teacher. Yeah. Um, I mean, they they are allowed to nominate uh, the I don't I I can't remember if the provost sent it to students or not. Um, the you know this year it was a little tricky because it got sent a bit late in the year, uh, so we had limited times. So we we're like contacting everyone we know and telling them to. Um, I sent so many personal emails out, but um, the. Yeah, I mean, that's, that'll be a goal next year and it'll help that we have the website up and going and we'll, we'll be able to have, like, you know, social media and, and other stuff connected directly to Gen Ed um, that'll, that'll allow us to, to kind of promote it to students more. Uh, the Student Senate is involved in the, in a, there's a member of the Student Senate on the General Education Oversight Committee, so she knew about the award. Um, so ideally, she takes it back to the Student Senate and and encourages them I tagged them and stuff but uh you know uh, we'll see but yeah it's, it's a little bit of a, a slapdash uh marketing effort this year <laughs> but uh I keep taking notes and uh thinking about you know what we can do when we have more time <laughs> I have questions stop nagging me <laughs> okay um so this is kind of like in the same realm I was going to ask you about your research, but I really want to ask you about digital history since I do a lot of digital history and digital humanities. What is this podcast if not for me? <laughs> Could you tell us sort of like how you got involved in it and like, you know, I guess sort of that path and then we can talk more about it. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think how I did get involved in it. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, it's like one day you're like a normal history student and the next you're like totally down this rabbit hole of digital history and you're like, I don't know how to come back from this. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think uh, I'm a, I always think of myself as a, a sort of weird digital history, digital humanities person. Um, sometimes, uh, sometimes I don't classify myself as such and then other people tell me I should, so I don't know. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think uh, for me, it probably, well, at, when I was doing research for my dissertation, I um, had a lot of people who said I should create a map of the of the kind of bus system, the Trocho system in Ghana. Um, and I 
kind of imagined what that would look like and I, I had a sense of, of how it would work and I, I started to see some examples of digital projects um, and started to think that there were possibilities in that but I didn't try to start it for a really long time. I just talked to a lot of people. Um, I think my first DH stuff was um, was related to my blog and um, so, so often people categorize me as a somebody who works in digital public history or digital public humanities. Uh, you know, DH is a really big tent. So uh, there's, there's a lot of people. Um, I don't know how to code. I do uh, know, however, how kind of, I, I do understand information architecture and I study design and user interface and user, user, um, user design. So, um, you know, I understand the front end part of it more than the average person. Um, and that's also well within the realm of DH. Um, I think, you know, I started, I started really getting more involved when I tried to make my project come to life. Um, so, you know, I, I worked with the Matrix Center for Digital Humanities at Michigan State. And they, um, there's, a, there's a big kind of African studies community there and, and they have been very involved in digital humanities at Michigan State for a long time. And so I knew a lot of people involved and I, um, I contacted them and, and they were helping me try to get grants and think about how to you know, do the project. Um, we ultimately kind of gave up on the grants front because it just seemed so overwhelming. Um, and also I decided that the project was gonna be a slow burn um, that, that this wasn't something I was going to commit myself to, like, this is the thing I'm doing right now. Um, yeah, so the, uh, I, I decided instead that um, I was going to work with students as much as possible to develop the project. And so I, uh, I had some computer science students who were finishing their, they have to do projects at the end of their, um, the end of their degree. And they, um, the chair of the department allowed me to pitch mine as, uh, as a possible project for them. And, uh, the, it was, it was really fun. So they, they developed the, most of it actually, it's pretty close and there's some stuff that has to be worked out, um, and some final kind of permission level stuff that has to be done, but, um, uh, it's, it's pretty close. I have to pay somebody to finish it, but, um, you know, that idea, like the idea that, that you can have a DH project that is a really slow burn that involves students that, that is not, that doesn't have to be a big, you know, flashy grant thing that you, you figure out, like you can do, like my project is not an uncomplicated project. It's a very, um, very complicated project coding wise, but also like in its different dimensions um, that actually made it harder to get a grant for it because it was hard for people to understand it. Um, but you can do a project like this w using existing university resources and incorporating students. Um, it's entirely possible. And uh, so, yeah, I, I wanted to do that. I also like to make it as open as possible. So I, I invite my colleagues who work on, you know, Accra or work in Accra to submit stories I, um, and submit materials. It'll be ultimately open to the public so anybody can submit things. And I've, I've worked for years in Ghana to try to generate um, attention and awareness that this is coming and to get people excited about it. Um, you know, I think, 
yeah so like in the process of doing all of that I I got to learn more about DH and to learn about the field so um, I actually think it's really important and I tell people all the time that it's it's not it's not enough to, to just use digital technologies that there's there's method and ethics and um, you know, lots of things that are that are connected to the use of digital technologies. You know, as a historian of technology, maybe this is why I appreciate this, right? Um, but you know, that that kind of ethics um, and the and the methods associated with it really are central. They're essential. Um, if you're going to have students do a DH project, they need to understand something about the digital. Um, you know, they they need to have read the literature. Uh, and this is something that we've been talking about lately as people are now like turning online to do all of their research and are, you know, thinking about like, oh, I can use social media as a source and I can use, you know, for research and I can use, it's like, yes, you can. But also there is a whole body of scholarship about the methods and theories and ethics surrounding these tools and these sources. And you need to read those just like you would with any other method. Um, and I, th I think a similar thing happens with oral history sometimes. People are like, oh yeah, you just go talk to people. It's like, no, 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 <laughs> no. Because I've, I've heard what comes out of the, of the results of people just going and talking to people, right? Like grad students or other people who are like sent out on an oral history project, but have never been given any training in oral history, right? Yeah. And it, uh, it's, yeah, I mean, it, it ends up being problematic, right? So, um, yeah, I mean, I think, I think that's so key. And so that, that's what I did. I tried to learn something about the methods and the ethics surrounding the project. I wanted to understand how other projects worked. I wanted to understand how my project fit in with this, um, with this community. I wanted, yeah. Um, I also really love the collaborative part of it. I, that's one of the things I love so much about DH, um, that, that there's a lot of conversation about work in progress that, that people are less precious about talking about their failures and talking about mm. the fact that things take a long time and you know um, showing showing work in progress. I, I think it's really admirable and something that the rest of us can really learn something from and something I've tried to embrace in, in the way that I approach my blog and the way that I encourage students to do work and other sorts of things. Um, but yeah, I just, uh, it, it became a bit of an accident and then, then I got sucked in. And um, so, yeah, now I, I do, um, I do a lot more with DH. For me, it's, um, it's connected to this broader kind of technology and culture um, and technology and society orientation that, um, that my research has. If that's like the, if there's an umbrella for all of my, research interests and teaching interests, that's it, right? It's the kind of social and cultural context um, for technology. And uh, so yeah, DH falls, especially critical digital humanities and um, really falls into that really, really clearly, I think for me. So yeah, it's, it's, part, of a, it's part of a bigger thing for me. I'm not like a, I'm a DH person. Uh, but I'm like, DH is a really important thing that we should all be paying attention to when we talk about technology. <laughs> yeah, I mean, sometimes I definitely feel like I'm holding down the fort for grad school, like grad student projects on like digital humanities and stuff, because like we have this podcast. 
And then, you know, I've got like a few like mapping projects and I've done stuff with like the School of Information Science. And like, and I think that, you know, I have a step ahead of everybody, but it's because I selected to have a step of everybody ahead of everybody because I went through the School of Information Science. Mm -hmm. And a lot of current archiving doesn't just focus on like, you know, the physical records anymore. It's like, you have to live in this digital world. You have to be able to digitally advocate for your collection and like your project and stuff. And and so I sort of feel like I have this step ahead of everybody, but it's also like, you know, what are you guys doing to, to meet me up here? Because like, like, I mean, and I'm happy to like answer anyone's questions. And like, I just went through Tracy's public history class and like, you know, it got to like podcasting and she like turned it over to me to like answer everybody's questions. Cause she's like, you know, you know more than I do. So just answer these questions. And then, and then we were talking about digital humanities projects and she's like, well, you should ask Allie cause Allie knows like you know, uh, like about this stuff. Cause she does this. And, and it's just like, you know, I'm like, I'm like, thank you. That's very flattering. But it's also like, you guys all should be thinking about these things because it's not going to be enough anymore. I mean, and I'm not even going to be chasing a tenure track job, but it's like, it's not going to be enough anymore for you to have this like sexy book project. Like you have to have the sexy book project and what digital humanities projects and and I stumble into these for the same reason you said they're slow birds. Like, it's not like I'm setting out to do this. It's just something I fall for. And I'm like, I got to do this because who else is going to do it? Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's, um, I think the other stuff that's related, you know, so in our department and for me, history, communication and digital history are interconnected. And, um, you know, the idea that you need to figure out how to communicate history to diverse audiences. You need to figure out how to create online, you know, presence for yourself. You need to, like, you need to figure this out. And you don't do that on a whim. It doesn't work the same way professionally as it does personally. Right. And, um, you know, you really do need to think it through. And, and there are tools for you. And we have a class. And students need to enroll in the class when it's offered, right? Uh, Likewise with digital digital humanities and digital history. So we've had some enrollment problems and it's, um, you know, it makes it hard to offer the class regularly, which is a chicken and the egg sort of thing. Um, but, you know, I think one of my enduring frustrations is when students come up to me and say, oh, I really wish I had taken that. Or they'll say, I really want to know more about X. And I'm like, you know, I, I taught a class last semester and you didn't enroll. Right. So, so like, you know, there were like, a, there's going to be an American history, something, something every semester. Right. Um, and a European history, something, something every semester, like a 5,000 level class, you're going to be able to take or 7,000 level class, whatever. You're going to be able to take that stuff anytime. Right. But when history communication or digital humanities or digital history comes up, I don't know, maybe you put the stuff aside and you take it. Um, because I do think, I think you're right. Um, I think it is really critical, really important. And I think, you know, I, I have these, these challenges. I know Tracy thinks about them too. Like, you know, what do we, how do we talk to students about the state of the field and, um, you know, what it, what the job market looks like and what the varieties are of, of opportunities and the realities, right? I mean, like, I think people have to be realistic. Um, all of us have to be realistic. I have to too. Like somebody was just like, oh, you could get a, you could go get a job somewhere. And I'm like, not right now. Uh, you know, uh, that's, that's not possible, especially as a, 
um, especially given my field and the current politics that are going on. Um, understandable politics, but all the same. Um, the, you know, I think all that stuff, like we just, we have to figure out a way to be way more straightforward and honest about that. And I, you know, I, I sometimes, you know, I'll, I'll suggest that and I'm told like, well, you can't say that. Um, you know, you can't say that to graduate students. Don't um, worry, I'm saying it to them. I'm like, y'all ain't gonna get a job. You need to think yeah. about this stuff. You know, I mean, I think, you know, if you think about the hierarchy of institutions and the, like, you know, if, if only people from Ivy League institutions are getting interviewed, even at community colleges and Wayne State is unranked, right? you know, just realistically, right? What does that right. mean? Yeah. And um, does that, that, like, you know, getting a job even like we have is a near impossibility. It's not impossible, but it's a near impossibility. It makes it very, very hard. Um, and, and so, but I do think there's things you can do, right? So people like Joe Rector did it, right? Um, and, and there's things you can do. And I think that digital humanities and, and, and public history and, um, and other sorts of things are really great paths to that, right? They're ways to distinguish yourself. And we do have opportunities. People just have to take them. And I think, um, you know, I think for whatever reason, um, a lot of people come to graduate school. Um, yeah, I was just a really unusual person when I entered graduate school. I had like no conception of what it was. I didn't know what it meant to be a professor. I had no idea. Like I had no preconceived like dreams of what, what I was gonna be on the other side. And I was fully ready to like quit if it didn't work out, right? Um, or get a job in something else if I couldn't get a job in academia. But uh, I think a lot of people do have dreams about being a professor um, and being like the professors they had. And mm. um, I, I just think that's not a healthy approach for all kinds of reasons. Um, right. You know, like you just don't know where you're gonna end up. You don't know what your passion's gonna be. You don't know what your skills and talents are gonna be. Do you, with the, in relation to the general ed programs or classes, are you finding that they're more open, either students or people involved in those teaching areas are more open to digital? Because now I work at a school and everything is uh, technology-based, not just because sometimes, we're, I mean, we're in person, but sometimes we're remote with what, everything that's going on, but everything the kids do has some type of, they have an ed tech specialist at the school that teaches ed tech. And like the librarian sometimes teaches tech. Thankfully they have the ed tech person. So I'm not super involved in teaching the tech, but yeah. you know, do we think it, when you're, when you're with your like undergrads and like a more traditional younger undergrad, are they wanting to do digital projects? Is there room within the classes to do digital projects or are we gonna have to, continue waiting because I would say it's a, a somewhat generational thing although Allie and I are almost digital natives uh, given our age but not we're, we're just on that cusp of being digital native or not but the people after us clearly are mm -hmm. so what are you seeing with those undergrads and their approach to things yeah I think it's an interesting question I it's so first I'll say k-12 teachers are like way ahead of us on all mm. sorts of things. Um, and a lot of the conversations that we have around SOTL is about how important it is for university educators to, to, be res to respect K through 12 teachers and to listen mm. to, because they have a lot of things to teach us about pedagogy. Um, 
and so there's a conversation about K through 16 and how we need to think about um, this is a continuum more than currently happens. But, um, you know, I think, and I think that um, K through 12 teachers are excited to do DH projects and to do public facing projects. So like I did a talk at Indiana University and the person who does their um, like K through 12, she's like their K through 12 liaison person. Um, and she was like, my teachers want to do this. Please yeah. help me about like what kinds of tools and information and like ethics and like you know, questions should I be providing them? Like, how can we help support them? That sort of thing. So I, I think there's a lot of potential there, right? Um, we have a weird situation with, with um, social studies education at Wayne that I'm, I don't quite understand. So it's, it, that's a challenge for us, but um, all the same. Yeah, I, I mean, I think um, I, I use a lot of alternative um, assignments in my undergraduate courses, in all my courses, but especially my undergraduate courses. Um, I do that for a number of reasons. So I think the, the digital native thing, um, I think is interesting because I think it's actually working out in a slightly different way than people often suspect. Mm. Um, I, I don't think, so if I just give them the option to do whatever, if I say, you can do a digital project, you can do a whatever, they always, like 98% of them, if I still give an option to do an essay or just to create a PowerPoint, they'll do that. Mm. Hands down, every time. Um, and that's, that's really interesting to me. And I think in part that's because they've been told that school projects are like come in this form right I don't know you know because like I'm thinking back and like I took uh Kadada Dr. Williams class on African-American history and memory and she explicitly said I don't want a paper like I want you to come up with some other project and I and I honestly think it was being forced to come up with something that was outside of this realm is what made me be really creative is and like and because it's like you know and I think it's because they know exactly what they can get away with with the paper. They know the minimum. They know all of these things. That's what it is, is it's more, I know this. I don't know this. Mm. Yeah. I, I think it's funny though, because I think they think they know it and they don't actually. So uh, well, like actually they end up doing better on the non-essay um, projects than they do when they write an essay. Yeah. Uh, but I, I think I, I think the expectation for what you do in class and, and what they think they what like they think they what college is yeah is is an essay right um so yeah in the next time I do this next semester I'm gonna tell them they're not allowed to do an essay mm. right um it, it can't be an option because if it's an option they'll choose it and yeah and I want them to do this other stuff because I see them I can see their thinking a lot more clearly in the other projects and I see their the the extent of their learning a lot more in the other projects than I do in the essays right but my such bad like habits and practices associated with essay writing that they don't um they don't it, it's so hard for them to get past it and mm. um and and it inhibits their ability to actually express how much they they understand mm. um so i think i think what's interesting about the digital native stuff is not necessarily that they gravitate to the digital um or even that they can do it always. So, so we, we know that like, you know, to search on the internet, for example, right. To do thoughtful internet searches. Yeah. Matter. 
right? Using online databases, they don't understand how to navigate them. They don't, they don't understand how to navigate websites. They don't like, it's, so there's a lot, there's a lot of things that we, we thought would happen that would be easier that aren't, um, yeah. turns out. But, but I do think that the thing that doesn't get talked about enough, but is true, is that this digital environment has made younger people a lot more thoughtful about design and presentation. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, one of the biggest challenges I have with helping students think about essay writing is that they, they think of it as a form and they don't bring intentionality to the writing. So they're not thinking intentionally about how they organize their sources or how they present material or how they connect ideas. Like it's, it's like, oh, well, this is the form and I'm filling out the form. Um, so I've started having them do infographics mm-hmm. instead and then have them explain to me why they designed the infographic the way they did. Mm-hmm. And that is enlightening because this like the level of sophistication of their ideas and their understanding is so much higher right than if i had them write essays it's just yeah. so much higher. and so i've started using those infographics as like a a model so it's like a like almost like pre-writing right or or like a form of an outline but i don't think outlines help a lot of people to be honest like if, if you have a hard time organizing information and being intentional about your writing in the first place outlines aren't going to help you yeah uh, but doing the infographic seems to help and then they have to explain what they're doing and why they did it and then I say okay so what you did there you translate that into essay writing right so like what does that mean to translate that same thought and care that you gave to this infographic into an essay oh wow yeah I my first project at the school was um fourth graders in science class learned about lighthouses because we're in Michigan. And traditionally the librarian had also done in library class, they would do a project about their lighthouse and it was like a trifold. Well, I just, I started late in the school year. I didn't know how to order materials. I didn't have that established. So I said, what can I do with these fourth graders that doesn't involve any material buying for me? Cause I don't know how to do that yet. And I was like, I talked to the ed tech specialist and I said, we have Google suite for the whole school, Google classroom. Let's, can I make a website with the kids? Mm -hmm. And so she helped me set up the website with each page, each kid got a page. And then I walked them through the research project or process of like how to research their lighthouse. And then I, there was like six templates that Google provides for like what your webpage can look like. And they had to pick one and they physically drew it out themselves and just some of them were more detailed and said this is what the fact I'm putting here this is the picture I want all that stuff others were more chaotic <laughs> and then they all I had three classes of fourth graders all make a website together basically they each had a page and I first off I've never taught before second I've never taught anyone to make a website before so we were all doing it together and then later in the year they have like a big Michigan day and we'll unveil their websites. And so, yeah, it was really cool. But at the same time, the whole time I was like, am I doing this right? I don't know what I'm doing. I don't think that's what they're doing when they do those things. (laughs) Yeah, everyone was very happy and the the school's very interested in differential learning and you don't Mm -hmm. sit and learn like by rote or anything like that. So people were happy, but yeah, I don't know what to do with them the next time. (laughs) 
Yeah, I mean, you know, that that like the idea that like nobody knows what they're doing when they when they do that. I mean, I think it's real that I, I tell students in the digital humanities class and in the history communication class, it's like, I'm not the expert on everything. Mm. And, you know, sometimes stuff's going to fail and, you know, like tech's not going to work and we're going to have to change course and I'm not going to have the answer to all of your questions. And, um, you know, we're going to have to figure it out. And that is the way that DH works. Um, that's the way that history communication works. That's the way that public history works. That people don't, you know, it is this collaborative process where people have to admit their failures and admit their limitations and be willing to ask for help. And I love that. Like, I love not having <laughs> to have all the answers. I love being able to work in collaboration with people. Um, you know, I love, you know, students having to take responsibility for part of that process. And and you know, pursue some of the answers themselves. They probably think will think of stuff or find answers that I won't be able to find. Mm. Um, that's that's the kind of classroom that I love, and I think the the digital the digital realm on all sorts of levels like helps us do that because it breaks us out of the assumptions of what a classroom has to be. It breaks us out of the assumptions of what an assignment has to look like, and it allows us like this freedom and creativity. And and I think if you connect it to what people you know, what people do in other parts of their life. Um, yeah. And their kind of social life, then they're like, oh, okay, yeah, got it. Um, and, and then you get a more kind of, you know, meaningful transformative education, right? Then you, then you see people taking the stuff that they're learning in the classroom and applying it to the world and to their life. And that's what we really ideally should want um, instead of it just being kind of book learning. I do um, love the difference too between like, you know, a lot of the times like doing the traditional history research feels very proprietary because you're very protective over it versus like digital humanities work where everyone's like, here's how I did this. Replicate the whole thing. I don't care. Here's how you do it. And like they they just don't care. Like they want you to succeed. They want you to be successful at like completing your project. They'll make so many YouTube tutorials to teach you how to do every single step because it's not like that. And I think that that's what's so nice and refreshing about it is like, if you're not that type of proprietary person, you're just like, okay, cool. Yeah. And I, I think, I think that's part, that's part of why I've always really liked the DH community too, is, is, um, yeah, like I, I don't know. I, I've talked to some, um, some other historians, some other historians of Africa and, um, and they'll talk about how they're so anxious when they publish their book and they're like, oh, people are already passing me by. And, and, you know, I'm no longer the expert now. I've published this now. Other people are publishing things. And, and I'm, you know, it, I've, I've lost, I've lost track. I'm like, I don't, I don't care. Right. That, you know, I, I mean, I did this knowing that it was foundational and that people were going to build on it. I said explicitly, you know, in the like intro to my book or the conclusion of my book, like there's a whole bunch of other stuff left to be written about this. And I constantly am encouraging graduate students and other faculty to do that work. Like, please go, go do this, help increase our understanding of this topic. Like, why would I want to feel like I had ownership of that? Mm. Particularly problematic as an outsider um, in an African context. But I think, I think historians and scholars in general would, would benefit from getting rid of that notion altogether um, because we're rarely studying ourselves. Right. Um, so yeah, it's, yeah, we're always studying somebody else. <laughs> so, so it's, it's not, we don't own it. <laughs> we, right. we don't own it. And it, it would just really be, I think, 
on all sorts of levels. I mean, it helps with the elitism stuff. It, um, it helps create community. It helps encourage, you know, conversation in the public sphere um, and helps show the relevance of, of our scholarship in all sorts of ways when you have the attitude, I think. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. I do think too, like, if like, you know, if two authors are like working on the same topic, the idea that they'll collaborate on something is like unfathomable. But if like you and I somehow were working on the same digital humanities project, we'd be like, let's mash them together. And then we wouldn't even think about it. We'd just be like, let's do it. And like, it, like, and it's just, it's so weird to me that there's such a lack of like wanting to collaborate at all. That's like just baffling to me. Yeah, I think I think it's shifting generationally, but the yeah, it's still pretty strong. The I've been I've been doing a lot of collaborative writing during the pandemic, and um, <laughs> and I still have more to do over the break actually. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I think one of the one of the things. So I'm I'm really interested in collaborating with with some of my kind of faculty colleagues in African studies, African history, but. I'm also really interested in collaborating with graduate students. And, and so I have a bunch of African history graduate students that I've written with. Um, and, and for me and for the other faculty people that I have worked with, you know, for us, it's a form of mentorship, right? And it's, it's, an op it's a way to, to help, um, help people get their name out there and, um, and connect them. And, and so, yeah, I, I just I just think it's exciting. Like, you know, I, there's a lot, there's so many things that I'm interested in that I don't have the time to become an expert on. <laughs> but, you know, I just don't. Uh, but but I do have a piece of the puzzle, a piece of the conversation. And I'm really open to learning. And I, and so, you know, I, I often say I'm a bad historian because I, I don't follow those, <laughs> that, that sense of like, you know, a kind of private um, thing, but also I, I'm committed to what I often describe as radical, like um, intentional. Ex um, oh, I'm trying. I now I've for, now I've forgotten it, right? Um, but uh, like interdisciplinary scholarship, right? So uh, I, I really think that when you do research, you should do it. You should you should look at the question and then you should pursue the question from all possible angles mm. in order to understand it most fully and i think no one discipline has a monopoly on that and i think there's lots of methodologies and lots of um kinds of information that can help us understand a topic and um i was equally trained in anthropology so um that comes naturally to me and i have an interdisciplinary undergraduate degree but um the you know, I, I think um, at, at the core of good interdisciplinary scholarship and good interdisciplinary collaboration is a willingness to suspend the assumptions of your field, to, to decenter yourself mm -hmm. and to listen to other people and learn from them. And I think, I think that that is a really powerful model for all of us to engage in, um, in, in any field at any level. Um, but I, I think it's, it's really exciting and dynamic. And um, so it leads me to do all sorts of things. I work in collaboration with architects and engineers and urban planners and um, climate scientists and all sorts of people all over the world. And I, you know, I do Instagram takeovers for, an arch for the architects project. And I do a Instagram live thing for an art museum. And I do, a, you know, I do a, 
interactive um, or uh, Instagram embedded project called this Trotro Life with uh, a friend of mine who's a photographer in Ghana. Um, and I do, you know, like I, I do lots of different things and I am not, but I'm not the person that controls all those things. Right. I don't have to be the center of all of it to be part of it. And I think um, that gives me so many opportunities and I just have met so many amazing people and have gotten to be part of so many amazing things that, yeah, I don't know why people wouldn't do that. It's, I just, I just think it's, you know, it just, it's so, it's so much more, you know, um, for me, it's just so much more exciting and dynamic. I know it's hard for people to balance or, or a lot of people ask me how I do it. And I think some of that is assuming that I, I control it all. Right. Yeah. Uh, but I also think it, not everybody works that way. Not everybody kind of operates that way in the world, being able to hold a bunch of things at one time. Mm. At, uh, I, I don't know. I like it because you're not responsible for everything. And there's like so much freedom in that, that like, I, I've actually gotten yelled at by Liz for taking on way too many projects. Um, that's on me, but whatever, I'm not going to stop. Um, I'm not gonna, but I was like, listen, I was like nodding. And then I was like, I'm not going to do that. But, um, I like it. You're not responsible. What'd you say? She said the same thing to you. Yeah. And I'm like, no, actually I'm fine. I just work differently from you. Like I'm just able to do more things. Okay. Well, she wants me to focus on my comps, which is fair, but I'm also like, I think they're kind of outdated anyway. So maybe we could just, it'll be fine. Yeah. I'm not worried. Okay. But like, I like it cause you're, you're not solely responsible for anything and it's like a good networking opportunity. And it like allows, like you said, it allows you to work on things you otherwise wouldn't have been able to like work on which is like such freedom and like opportunity that why would you say no yeah especially if you're not the coordinator if you're just contributing and then your part ends and like you're not responsible for anything else that's the best kind of project yes it's it's delightful I I, it's yeah it's it's really the best um the I'm part of this internationally collaborative interdisciplinary club interdisciplinarily collaborative research group with people in Sweden and Malawi and um, uh, Sweden and Malawi and now Vietnam and uh, oh. Ghana and other places. It's, it's super cool. And uh, I'm the only historian oh. and uh, which is pretty typical for me. And uh, <laughs> the uh, it's, it's so wonderful because I'm not the central coordinator. I'm, I'm one of them, but because I, most of the grants that we get are in Sweden, um, because they just have more money uh, available. Uh, I, I tend not to be the lead. And so um, I get to be part of these amazing conversations. Unfortunately, it requires me to wake up at seven in the morning and be on Zoom, but it's, it, you know, I, I get to hear from people all over the world and they're just so amazing. And we get to work on something together and learn from each other. And it's just like, you know, I never would be able to do this on my own. Right. And um, I don't know. I, I, I'm i not sure. I mean, I, I do think that some people have more focused interests um, and don't have as, as many, uh, you know, interests in the world as I do um, or as, as messy of interests as I do. But yeah, I mean, I think, I think it's, it's totally possible. And so you know, your, your point about, you know, being, being dissuaded from taking on more projects or being told you do too many is, 
I think an important one because I do think that in academia there is a bias against people who work like we do mm-hmm. um, and our, our interest and have those kinds of multifaceted interests. Uh, I think the forms of evaluation that exist uh, for graduate students uh, in the in the kind of you know essay and dissertation process um, and comps. Um, I think the you know the way that we evaluate people for tenure and promotion and for merit for merit raises and things. Um, I, I think they all are biased against folks like us. Um, and, and I think that also when people think about, um, so people who are trying to give good advice and be a good mentor are sometimes just speaking about themselves and are not looking at you and what is what you need and what works for you. And, um, you know, so, I have become a little notorious in certain parts of the university for, for um, getting riled up when people tell um, junior folks or staff people or whoever um, that they shouldn't do so much service. Oh. And um, I, act, I mean, sometimes that's true, but I'm a person who does a lot of service and it's really important to me. It's very central to why I'm here and I manage to do all my other stuff too. Mm. Um, at a level of excellence. And so I don't think it's actually, I don't think anybody should be telling me that I shouldn't be doing it. Um, I think we should learn to look at people as individuals and what their capabilities are and stop trying to put everybody in a box. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, you know, it's a, just say like, who are you and how does, how does your life work and how does your brain work and how, you know, what makes you feel fulfilled and can can you manage everything if you can then god bless right like if if it if you can manage everything and you feel fulfilled and you know are in a good place then let the people be (laughs) it's okay like you don't have to tell them they can't do it i would imagine that what probably needs to be said to some people is that they probably need to do more service is from conversations i've had in academia is that because there are people like you and there are others like you that do a lot and then you know and you're you're close to that tipping point which i get close to too because i take lots of projects and like you know, that's not in my mind i mean that's somewhat in my academic life but in outside of my academic life i've been talking a lot of projects i often get asked to like do things and i often i don't say no ever and i it's something I should learn to say a little bit more, but you know, that that's like a, a difficult thing too. It's like, it's probably not the people asking you to do less because they probably do have your best interest in heart, but there are probably other people around you that are like, well, I don't need to do this because Jennifer does such a good job or so-and-so does such a good job. But at the end of the day, those people probably need to be told you need to do more service. It's not yeah. enough to just kind of teach your classes and do your research. Yeah, and I, I think this is, you know, it's a big challenge in academia in general. I think, you know, again, it's about how people, like why people come to academia and what their what their expectations are. Um, but yeah, like to me, it doesn't make sense not to do, like service is a really central part of how I understand my job and I really love it. And I love doing administrative work actually, um, meaningful administrative work. And um, I think, you can do really powerful things there, but uh, yeah, it's uh, there's there are more than a few people who uh, 
who who maybe don't like to do anything um, or do very little. Um, I also think that uh, academics have a, and again, this is not universally true, but I do think that that the flexibility the flexibility of academia, especially in like a research university where we only teach two two generally, um, that there's this sense that academics like to talk about how they work all the time. Mm. They don't. Uh, they they don't. They they sit and stew a lot, <laughs> um, and they they spend a lot of time, a lot of unnecessary time doing things. Um, but they don't actually do a lot. Um, and you know that's not saying that like thinking time isn't important because it absolutely is. But um, you know when I started working in my office nine to five Monday through Friday, it was astonishing how much I got done. Mm. Uh, you know, I didn't used to do that. I didn't for years. I hated working in my office for a really long time, but I do it religiously every day. Well, obviously not right now. Now I work in my home office. Uh, but, uh, you know, in general, and it's killing me not to be able to go to my, my work office. I hate it mm. um, for various reasons. But, you know, going there nine to five every day and having that structure was really important to me. And I think like, you know, nine to five, Monday through Friday are work hours. And we should be working then. We're paid right. a salary. And it's not unreasonable to be told that you need to do work during work hours. Um, or that it's expected that you're doing work during work hours. I don't think. Um, and that, that's just something that's helpful for me to think about, like to, to create boundaries in my own life so that I can have a life outside of work. So that in the evenings I can do stuff that I'm passionate about or relax or on the weekends I can have a life um all your cooking do what all your cooking yeah exactly <laughs> I cook and I sing and I you know have a lot of friends that are not in academia and um we travel and we you know we we do lots of things and um yeah I have a an, an insistent an insistent life outside of academia and outside of work but that's only possible if I do my work during work hours, right? Um, if I allow it to spill into all my life, I think it just gives us a false sense of how much we work. Right. Uh, so I think a lot of people feel like they don't have time for things, but they do have time. Uh, they're just not necessarily using their time efficiently. And that's true of me right now. Like just yesterday, I you know had a huge chunk of the day and I was like, oh, I'm gonna be able to get some work done. An introduction to my book, thank goodness. And I tooled around and did a whole bunch of other stuff that I didn't need to do because I'm tired and it's the end of the semester and I need a break. But, you know, yeah, like that happens. And, and when I used to not go to my office, it happened all the time, right? Sure. Like I'd go run errands and I'd go out for lunch and I would, you know, I would, you know, do a thousand other things. And I'd be like, oh, yeah, I'm working. I work so much. <laughs> I, I really, I really didn't. So I don't know. It's there's that too, right? About how people manage their time and how aware they are, right? Like how how manage their time. Um, yeah, I mean, this I, might sound really. I don't know. You might find this relatable. I need to be doing multiple things, or I will not effectively manage my time. Same. If I'm only working on one thing, then it's like I can put off that one thing because that's the only thing I have to do. And so, like, if I am not, and like. And like, I guess like, you know, 
this is this and this is the main factor. I will not be productive if I'm not working on 87 things. And so I need all 86 of those other things so that I can do this one thing that I need to do. I just yeah. need them. Only, no, only, only people that function that way would have gone to a conference and been like, yeah, let's start a podcast while they're in the midst of grad school. Like, <laughs> yes. And we both are going to school. And details. Those are details. <laughs> you know, like yeah, no, I'm absolutely the same way. I always have a thousand things. Um and uh, it part partly that's the way my brain works and it goes about a thousand miles a minute. Um, but but it's all yeah, it's also just helpful for me. That's the only way I get things done. Um I think, you know, the I was thinking about your point about saying no, Ray, and I I think, you know, one of the things that I've learned just over the last couple of years and really over the last year, um, not counting the pandemic, right? So the actual year yeah. <laughs> where you could interact with people um, is, uh, is that it wasn't so much that I needed to say no to more. It was that I needed to say yes to the right things and I needed to say no to the wrong ones. Um, and the ones that were wrong for me. And, and so like, you know, if you're in a situation where you're not being supported properly to do work or your, your energy and efforts are being um, unrecognized or stolen, it's um, right. the credit for them. Or if you're being put in an impossible situation and so you're just spinning your wheels all the time, um, you know, in those situations, walk away. I walked away yeah. from something. Um, for various reasons, but, but it was in that category, you know, and it, it was causing me so much stress and it wasn't the work, right? right. It was the situation around the work yeah. that, that was the cause of the problem. And so, you know, I do a lot of stuff. I do a lot of stuff with Jen Ed. It's basically a separate job and um, that I'm partially compensated for. And um, I have the best bosses and coworkers, like the best, right? So that's a pleasure, right? It's all pleasure. It's not even when people are annoying or rude or, you know, whatever. And, and even when it gets to be a lot in terms of work, I'm never, I never feel burdened and it never feels like an imposition. Um, and I'm always happy to do it. Mostly. Right. <laughs> I, I did, I did cause myself to get shingles at one point, but um, oh. so don't do that. Um, but it turns out I really hate recording formal videos, like presentations. So stuff like this is, is great, right? <laughs> Off the cuff lectures, like I'll, I'll give impromptu lectures to God knows how many people, fine. Uh, but if I have to record a five minute video that's going on the university website, I'm going to get shingles. Oh, um, no, no. <laughs> I didn't know that about myself before, <laughs> before this, this time. Um, but you know, yeah, it makes all the difference, all the difference in the world. Um, you know, if you're being jerked around or yeah. whatever, feel free to walk away. And that was hard for me. That was really hard for me. Um, but you know, when you have other things you can look for, you, you know, or you can look forward to and say, well, I can better, you know, devote my energy to this or, you know, whatever, then, then you feel, you feel freer to do it. And it's, right. it's not an easy, but I think that framing for me made a lot of sense. Whereas the like, say no, learn how to say no thing. It doesn't, it never quite resonates with me. 
Yeah. And I appreciate it's coming from a good place, but I, it just doesn't make sense in my life. Yeah, it was, for me too, it was more of a figure out how to negotiate it so it works for myself better for certain things. Because I, I, for a long time, I had a lot of different jobs and they were somewhat ad hoc and one was a little more demanding than the other. And that one didn't pay very well. And so like, I had to ask for more pay, which was like a new thing. And again, it's still very like somewhat ad hoc type of situation. And those people also weren't used to paying people for the work. Mm -hmm. I was the first person they'd ever had that was like, you need to pay me for this. I'm an adult and that kind of thing. So um, that was, yeah, it was, I guess I kind of framed it similarly but like in my mind, it was like me saying no, but not really. I mean, I still did the thing, but I yeah. had to renegotiate how it would work. And that was, that was really hard. But yeah, it's really hard. And I think for women in particular, it's really hard. Like we're, yeah. you know, we're conditioned or like whatever, uh, socialized to, to do things and help people and, um, and to not ask for recognition and to not expect to be compensated and to not whatever. And so you know, yeah, it's, it's really hard. Um, and I think if you're a person who just naturally likes to help, uh, also, you know, regardless of gender, it's also really hard. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, you know, I don't like to, like, I, again, like what's thing with the titles, right? I don't like to throw anything around. I don't like to assume that I'm, you know, more deserving of something than somebody else has been. I don't like to assume, you know, like, so it's, it's hard, it's hard to advocate for yourself in those, <laughs> you know, you like <laughs> draw yourself or like whatever, put yourself in a, uh, in some straights. Uh, but it's, yeah, and it's the, the negotiation part is still really hard for me. Uh, yeah. Because I'm normally like, I just want to do this cool thing. And so if you can just figure out how to make it possible for me to do this cool thing, I'll do it. Right. You know, like oh, just no. a little bit. You just have to pay me a little bit, and I'll do it. Like yeah. what? You know, it doesn't have to be a lot. Don't worry about it. Like just, just let me do the cool thing. I just want to do the cool thing. Um, it's like she knows me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that is you. Yeah, <laughs> literally me. Um, it's harder when you don't like the situation you're in, right? So oh, yeah. Like, please, literally, I will do anything. Yeah get me out of this situation mm, yeah I, like, I worked on projects where like someone on the project was really difficult and like they really needed me on the project and I was like look I'll come back to this if so or when so-and-so leaves like mm -hmm. uh, it's not good for my mental health to keep working with so-and-so and I was just like so you circle back to me in a little bit because I can't do this mm, yeah. so, and that's not easy to say either no that's yeah. and not everybody responds to that well and that that makes it harder right um, yeah I know I have a few situations where that's that's been the case and it's yeah people have responded very differentially to those to those suggestions and I'm not always good at, at holding the line mm. um, yeah yeah and yeah so yeah it's it, it's hard because you don't want to get yourself to a point where it really does seriously impact your mental health um, right so that's, that's, you know, that has been, that has been my personal growth journey to try to figure out, you know, how can I better advocate for myself and see the, the kind of reality of a situation and how it affects me 
more how it affects me. I'm pretty good at reading people and I know who, like how people are going to be um, pretty immediately, but how it's going to affect me, I'm not always as good at. Uh, so yeah, trying to be better about that uh, from the beginning is, is always a struggle, but we all have those things. Yeah. Um, do you have any one final question? Do you want me to ask the fun questions? You can ask the fun. The fun questions. Um, we always ask people, and it can be, you know, related to your research, but it doesn't have to be. Uh, what are you reading right now? What are you watching? And since it's close to Christmas, even though this will come out later, do you have a favorite like holiday movie? That's that's our fun questions. Okay. Uh, what am I reading? Uh, I'm in the middle of writing a book, so it's uh, a lot of things. Uh, I guess right now I'm reading what's on my screen. Uh, <laughs> it's uh, Sir Gordon Gugesberg, who was the um, former governor of the Gold Coast in the 1920s. Um, he wrote something called the Keystone, which is his kind of treatise on education in the colonies. Mm. Um, I'm reading that uh, at the moment. Not, not super exciting. Very cheery, very cheery. Yeah, I know, right? Uh, oh, the, the most recent thing that came in though that was that was very exciting, um, I can show it to you, right here. Um, so uh, a friend of mine wrote, uh, just came out with this, oh, which cool. is, uh, yeah, it's this, it's this little book of, um, of life histories of drivers in Ghana that, that I worked with, so we both work with this, with this community, and um, it includes CDs of his of music that he's recorded with them, and DVDs, um, documentary films that he's produced with them, and it's it's all these uh, photos and um, yeah, life histories and other things. And he's been working on it for so long. Wow! So it was delightful to see it come out. So he sent it to me, and that was that was very exciting. So it's always nice to see people's stuff. Nice stuff come out uh what am i watching um oh my god we've we've binge watched so many things uh our our kind of evening schedule right now <laughs> involves watching star trek discovery uh and i'm not a trekkie but i get really into star trek for some reason like the i don't know um and sometimes we do some other things in between and then um then we watch an episode of monk uh, right. old reports of monk i love monk i always have um and uh and then uh, right before we go to bed we watch an episode of psych fun <laughs> yeah and that that's been our like our like recent tradition so the, those are the last two things we watch every day um and just like they're very familiar and comfortable and like, you know, they're, they're sweet a little bit. And uh, even though they're about murder most of the time, but. <laughs> um, yeah, those USA Network shows, Monk, Psych, and then I was really into Burn Notice as well. Those are, those are great. Yeah, yeah, they're good ones. Um, holiday movie. Um, I guess, I mean, I like many of them. I really love Christmas. The the one that we watched recently that I forgot how much I enjoyed was a Muppet's Christmas Carol. 
So yeah, I enjoy that one. I have a real fondness for the Mickey's Christmas Carol as well. Not the Disney remake, but the original Disney's Christmas Carol that had Mickey Mouse in it, which you all might not even remember. Uh, but it used oh, to show. Yeah, the yeah, Alley of No Yeah, it's it's great. I think it's like the best version. We're like, of we're like Mickey Mouse plays Bob Cratchit. Yes. Yeah. See, I know. I know what's up. It's so good. Uh, I can never find it, but I don't know. They never play it anymore. It's what about sad. you, Alley? I don't know. I feel like it must be on Disney Plus now. Probably, and they're so in their vault. Yeah. Um, okay, I don't feel bad about this. I'm reading the new Twilight book, so I don't feel bad about because nice. it's my joy now that the semester's over. <laughs> um, I'm not really been watching anything right now. I finished Sits Creek again, which was sad, and I didn't want it to end. And I'm not ready to start anything. And then um, I guess I guess technically my boyfriend and I are in the middle of um, The Witcher. Oh, okay. And then I'm waiting for him to watch the last episode of The Mandalorian. Uh-huh. not very patiently so yeah what yeah. about christmas movies um my favorite christmas movie is white christmas uh-huh. i have a classic but i love all the cheesy um romance ones yeah too. sure <laughs> um okay i've been reading the same book for a year i've also read 29 other books this year but i've been reading this book for a year so my goal is to finish it um by the end of the year. And then I just finished um, this book called Browsings, which was um, Michael Durda is a um, book reviewer and, and literary critic and things. And and he, he wrote a, a column in American Scholar for like one year in 2012, and then he turned it into this book. And so I've been reading that for a year, which was really fun because I kind of read it the way people did if they had read it when he was publishing each article. So I just finished that. That was really good. And then um, as far as TV shows, my best friend and I are watching um, Sopranos together because we're like really big TV people, but we've never seen the Sopranos. And so we are we watch that once a week together. That's been really good. My parents and I have been watching random movies and television together. And then at school, I had to, this is me saying yes. I had a prep period, like half a day prep, but the sub couldn't sub for like the makerspace class. And so they were like, can you cover this class? And I said, yes. And so I don't do art projects. And so I printed off like coloring pages for the kids and I teach at a Jewish school. So I was like, we are watching Rugrats Hanukkah special and you can color while we do this. So that was really fun to rewatch like three times. And then um, uh, Home Alone, we watch uh, Home Alone is a good Christmas movie. And then I need to watch The Holiday and uh, Love Actually. Oh, I love Love Actually. Yeah. yeah. That's an old favorite. I, th- I thought my husband was going to let me watch that the other day because he asked about it. And he's a Grinch. He, he hates Christmas. And he's, he's being a good sport this year because it's like the only thing keeping me together. So, yeah, uh, you know, it, but uh, yeah, we ended up not watching that. And we watched Klaus. And oh, that's really good. Yeah, it was kind of sweet. Yeah, I like so that. We're watching a lot more Christmas movies than we normally would. Normally, I would just sit and, and watch them. I watch a lot of Hallmark Christmas movies, too. Oh, yeah. They're beautiful. The new Netflix um, musical one is really good if you want to watch. Yeah. Yeah, I saw that. That was awesome. 
Yeah, that if was you, really if fun. If you want a recommendation for a really terrible one, I have one. Oh, what is that? Okay, have you ever seen The Spirit of Christmas? Is it Hallmark? I don't know if it's an official Hallmark movie, but it's in that vein. It's on Amazon Prime. Okay. And it's like uh, this guy dies at this inn and he comes back every year for like 12 days at Christmas time. And this city lawyer comes in to sell the inn. And I think you know it. (laughs) It's terribly amazing. Wow. Wow. That's that's like that. It's wonderfully awful. And I love it. Have you ever can't look away scene it came to me the other day and I was like mom do you remember that movie about the man who died and then he came back as the snowman and my mom was yes. like yes what movie yeah. it's called it's called Backdraft. It's oh, yeah. in a car crash and then comes back isn't it Michael Keaton yes there's <laughs> a little but like when you think about the concept of I watched that movie more than once but when you think when you say the concept out loud you're like who allowed a studio to make this really morbid, strange Christmas movie? It's really weird. Michael Keaton needed some money. <laughs> yeah. If you if you haven't seen it yet, highly recommend the KFC mini movie with Hallmark. Ooh. Can't wait. Hilarious. Hilarious. It is one of the funniest things I have seen in a very long time, other than our university uh, security awareness video that I watched. Oh yeah, you, you were tweeting about that. Yeah, yeah, that was pretty funny too. But uh, shut the front door really sh- shouldn't be in a training video, I don't think. But it made me laugh, so that's <laughs> um, Yeah, but the, the KFC mini movie, I, I highly recommend. You have to know it's gonna be, it's gonna be ridiculous, but they crammed every Hallmark movie cliche into 15 minutes yeah um, okay that's worth watching oh yeah I read for like this Instagram account put out like a competition for people to write like pitches for Hanukkah movies like Hallmark Hanukkah movies and I made my parents like the first night of Hanukkah listen to me read them all out to them (laughs) and some of them I was like these are really because there was a big scandal this year because the Hallmark Hanukkah movie didn't even come out during Hanukkah and there's eight days there's like over a week you could fit it in there and it's on your calendar like it's, yeah it's, it's it's there on your calendar yeah. <laughs> and some of the pitches were really good some of them were like basically Christmas movies rehashed mm-hmm. or whatever but some of them were I was like I'd watch this movie it's terrible but I would watch it it would be great mm-hmm. so bad yeah well, Thank you so much for agreeing to be on the podcast with us. You were one of the first people I thought of when we started th- thinking about who would we want on. And then when the fact that Allie didn't know you, I was like, well, this needs to be rectified. Yeah, so true. Yeah, no, it's, it's a delight. And anytime, I'm always happy to do things like this. It's fun for me, but uh, yeah, it's fun. All right, Thanks thank so you for having me. Yeah, and have a happy holiday and happy belated Hanukkah to you, Ray. Thank you. Yeah, I celebrate both. So, yes, Merry Christmas. Yeah. <laughs> have a good new year. <laughs> you too. You too. Bye. Bye.